your faith. You're listening to Tell Me a Story, a message from guest speaker, Brother Jay Lytle. We hope that today's message blesses and encourages you as you go through your day. Amen. Would you stand with me tonight? Greater Faith, we have such a special treat. Uh, My dear friend, Brother Jay Lytle, is out of the Heath Church and attends there at CLC where Pastor NZ is the pastor and Brother Lytle has led a tremendous ministry in the Bible quizzing ministry of the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, He's been a quiz master. He's led Ohio in that ministry, done great things and Brother Lytle knows the word. He's an anointed man of God. He's an excellent teacher. He comes highly recommended by his pastor. And I'm so delighted and excited that he is here tonight. Would you clap your hands and give a warm welcome to Reverend Jay Lytle. We love you, Brother Lytle. Take your liberty. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise in this place. I feel the Holy Ghost. God is good. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for letting us be a part of it, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. God is good. You can be seated today. Well, thank you, praise team. And um, I first met the Azzalinis about 15 years ago. And at that time, Ashley was a beginner Bible quizzer. And now here she is, married and serving the Lord and working. We just got to get her back in Ohio here sometime soon. I'm believing that. We love your pastor and their family. What a wonderful, anointed family. And I am not a world-famous evangelist like your pastor, I am a teacher. If you, can, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21 this evening. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is writing to Israel, and, and he says this. He says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And then in Joel chapter 1 and verse 3, the prophet Joel writes these famous words. He says, Tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down. From generation to generation. Could we just pray together as we receive the word this evening? Lord, I pray that with open heart and willing mind, I would receive your word in this place. Help me to hear your voice clearly and see your word as it is. For the word of the Lord is as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And I pray that that word would be a lamp and a light This evening, in Jesus' name, amen. The message tonight is one of the most important tools that we forget to use. 
It's something strong enough to overturn nations and heal divides. It changes the way that your family sees the world. What we're talking about tonight is something that uses the past to shape the future and create identity. For the next few moments, I'd like to preach on this subject. Tell me a story. The year was 1968. The war in Vietnam was front and center on every American's mind. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated and protests were igniting in every city. The United States was in turmoil and the whole nation was hurting. And out of that chaos came something that no one had ever seen before, at least no kid in America anyway. A person appeared on televisions and radios with a calm, soothing voice and an incredible ability to tell a simple story. He was a Pennsylvanian, the son of a businessman, whose mother knitted clothes for those in the hospital, a shy introvert as a boy who was bullied because of his weight. He spent much of his time alone as a child, playing with puppets and learning piano. This boy overcame his fears, graduated from Dartmouth College with a Bachelor of Music, and worked in the TV industry for nine years and then went back to school to become a minister specializing in media evangelism to children and families. He went to college again a third time to study child development. It was that man in 1968 who appeared with a radical idea to use stories with Christian principles to nurture the minds of those who watched. You might remember his song, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? The PBS special, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, aired 180 half-hour episodes in that first season. And in 1968, it was a light to every boy and girl who wanted something good to listen to. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood went on to create nearly 900 episodes over the next 33 years, ending in 2001. And it was all about this one man, Fred Rogers, who in the most gentle and unassuming way taught America essentially what Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which of these was a neighbor to him. Fred Rogers wrote episodes on how to cope with the assassination of Robert Kennedy, how to confront racism, how to cope with change, with new additions to the family, with death and divorce. He tackled the biggest topics in America with tiny little stories. Perhaps the most amazing feat of Mr. Rogers was on Capitol Hill when he testified before Congress in 1969. The incoming president, Richard Nixon, wanted to cut the $10 million budget for PBS, which would have shut down Mr. Rogers' neighborhood only one year into its existence. And Fred Rogers, for six short minutes, delivered one of the most powerful speeches ever before Congress. And by the end of those six Minutes After culminating his masterpiece with a song, Fred Rogers brings a hardened congressman to tears, and instead of getting $10 million in funding, he got $20 million. Fred Rogers went on to win six Emmy Awards, including a Lifetime Emmy in 1997. He received honorary degrees from over 40 universities, a Peabody Award, and the Presidential Medal of Honor in 2000. And when he died in 2003, memorials were published on the front page of every newspaper in America. And his life and work inspired future leaders like the creators of the television show Arthur and Wonders Pets and Blues Clues and Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. This is the legacy of one of America's great storytellers. 
For much of human history, the only way that people learned where they came from and what their relatives were like, every major lesson in life was taught through stories. For thousands of years, there were no photo albums and family videos and blog posts. In fact, multiple studies across various fields show that our brains are wired for stories. We just remember them better than facts. It's led to huge fields in educational psychology and memory science where people can actually turn large amounts of information into one big crazy story called a memory palace, and it works. And you won't be surprised to hear that Jesus knew this too. Let's do some Bible mathematics. There's approximately 181,000 verses in the New Testament. One out of five are the words of Christ. After removing duplicates, Jesus spoke roughly 30,000 words in the New Testament. Of those 30,000 words spoken by Jesus, around two-thirds of them are stories. Let that sink in for a moment. Two-thirds of every word your Savior spoke was a story. Now, there's one of two things going on here. Either literally two-thirds that Jesus spoke during the normal course of a day was a story, which seems completely impractical, or two-thirds of what the disciples remembered were his stories. If you take all the red letters in this book, it would take the average person four hours to read it all out loud. The disciples spent every waking moment with Jesus for three and a half years. That's 17,000 hours living and talking with the Lord of glory, but all we have are four hours worth of content. That would be like you going to the same professor's class 40 hours a week for eight years and only keeping four hours worth of audio. It's no wonder why John said in John 21, 25, there's also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that not even the world could contain the books that could be written. Jesus talked with them all the time. So why is it that three out of the four hours that we have is a collection of stories? If you spent that much time with someone and then waited a couple years and wrote it down in a book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'd end up writing down the things that had the biggest impact on you. The disciples wrote so many stories because it's what they remembered the best. It's the stories that imprint themselves on our mind in a way that facts and rules never can. Jesus could have gotten his disciples together and said, Hey guys, come around here. I want to tell you something. God forgives people. But he didn't do that, did he? Instead, he gathered them around and said, There was once a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to his father and said, Dad, I want my inheritance early. And he went to a far country and wasted that money on riotous living. And when every cent was spent and all he could eat was the husks that the pigs ate, and as he was sitting there in the mud, he thought to himself, I wonder if my dad will accept me back home. And he started walking back home in a great way off. His father saw him and ran and kissed him and put a robe about him and threw him a party because this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He could have gathered the disciples together. He could have said, God forgives people. But instead, he said, imagine you had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off. Wouldn't you leave 99 of them safe in the pasture to go search after the one? And when you find the one, you'll put it on your shoulders and you'll carry it home because your sheep was gone and lost, but now it's come back and it's found. That's how God feels about you when you come back to him. When the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus saw through his question and realized that he had a problem with compassion. And Jesus could have answered the question very simply. He could have said, your neighbor is anybody that needs help, but it never would have penetrated the heart of that lawyer. Instead, what Jesus said was, there was once a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, and he was robbed and beaten and left, for, and left half dead. And every lawyer standing there thought to himself, hey, walked the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I've wondered before, what if I fell among robbers? And at this point, they're invested in the story because they're thinking, that could have been me. And Jesus said, a Levite walked by and didn't help him. And then a priest walked by and didn't help him. And at this point, the lawyer's invested in the story. He's like, well, why wouldn't they stop and help the man? What if that was me there? And then Jesus tells them, and then a good Samaritan walks by. Samaritan. I thought we don't like them. You see, Jesus was trying to solve two problems with one story. He was trying to address his lack of compassion and his racism in the same story. Jesus was attacking that with a simple lesson. The Samaritan comes by and treats his wounds and carries him to an inn and pays for his expenses. Now, which of these was a neighbor to him? And that lawyer, confronted by the conviction in his heart, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, Go and do likewise. The power of a story. I'm offering to you today that there are two stories that need to be told. The first is God's story, and the second is yours. When I say God's story, I'm talking about the hundreds of stories scattered throughout time and space, culture, and creed that have shaped the world above any writing ever created. Telling God's story is knowing these stories, big and small. From the two verses mentioning Tola, the judge of Israel, to the 848 mentions of Moses across 31 books. From the pride of Jephthah, to the ignorance of Samson, to the courage of women like Ruth and Esther in jail, there are countless stories to tell. From the faithfulness of the prophetess Anna to the alabaster box of Mary, is there a young girl rising up in this church who knows from the stories that she hears that there's a place for her in God's kingdom too? In these pages, the 66 books, the 1189 chapters, the 31,102 verses, it's 40 authors spanning thousands of years, there's something for everyone in every life situation. College students can go to Daniel chapter 1 and read about his years at the University of Babylon. Young ministers, go to First and Second Timothy. When things aren't going your way, you can go to Genesis chapter 39 and read about when things weren't going Joseph's way. Some of the most inspiring women in the Bible, uh, some of the most inspiring women in history are found in the Bible. Ruth was committed. Esther was brave. Vashti was modest. Mary was patient. Deborah was inspiring. Anna was persuaded. Hannah was fervent. And Abigail was wise. This is still the best book on worship. Asaph shows us how to praise in Psalm 81.1. David shows us how to dance. Moses shows us how to bow. And Paul and Silas show us how to sing. In this book, there's something for everybody in every situation. Esther shows us how to step out. Job shows us how to hold on. Genesis tells us the beginning of the matter. And Ecclesiastes tells us the conclusion of the matter. Hezekiah stopped the time. Elijah stopped the rain. David stopped the giant. Phineas stopped the pain. The prodigal came back. Jonah ran away. The leper returned. And Ruth chose to stay. Joseph got promoted. Daniel got accepted. Tola got a mess. And Peter got rejected. So what do you need? 
Is there a better story on conquering obstacles than when an overlooked shepherd pushed off the armor of a king and walked into a valley called Elah with a sling, a stone, and a prayer? There's no book like it. Is there a better story on second chances than when an 80-year-old murderer with a walking stick and a stutter led a nation of slaves out from under the world's greatest superpower? There is no book like it. Is there a better example of love than when a little manger led to a rugged cross and an empty tomb and a pathway to heaven? There is no book like it. Only in God's kingdom can you love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to them that hate you. Only in God's kingdom can you move forward by standing still. Only in God's kingdom can death be a requirement for life. And only in God's kingdom does ruling mean serving. Only in God's kingdom can someone speak a language they've never learned and hold a hand they've never felt and love a savior they've never seen. Only in God's kingdom can something smaller than a seed move something bigger than a mountain. And only in God's kingdom can a whale serve as a submarine, a donkey serve as a messenger, and a den of lions serve as a mattress and a pillow. We're talking about God's story. And you know, every story in this book really just points to one person, and that's Jesus. As I was researching some of these cross-references in the Scripture, it just blows my mind. You realize that in Exodus, when you read about Moses, you're really just reading about Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus, when they were born, survived the attempts of a wicked king to take their life. Both Moses and Jesus were hidden in the land of Egypt. Both were saved by their mothers, then adopted. Moses became a prince of Egypt. Jesus became the prince of peace. Both held their true identity secret. Both saved a woman at a well. Both became shepherds and delivered their people from Egypt. Both were rejected by the ones they were meant to deliver. Both preached sermons from a mountain. Both spent 40 days fasting and performing signs and wonders. Moses' life was meant to point you to Jesus. Both Jonah and Jesus were called to preach repentance to the nations. Jonah was willing to dive into the sea to save everyone on his boat, and Jesus was willing to dive into death to save all mankind. Jonah spent three days in the depths of the sea. Jesus spent three days in the depths of the grave. Both rose out of their tomb on the third day and for 40 days preached deliverance to all who would listen. Jonah's life was meant to point you to Jesus. Both Melchizedek and Jesus were described as high priest and king of Israel at the same time. Both Elijah and Jesus prophesied over Israel, multiplied food, raised the dead. Both Elijah and Jesus fled from a wicked ruler, fasted 40 days in the wilderness, commanded Israel to repent. Elijah walked through the water. Jesus walked on the water, and both were taken up into heaven. Elijah's life was meant to point you to Jesus. Both Isaac and Jesus. Both Isaac and Jesus were beloved sons of a righteous father. Both Isaac and Jesus were children of Abraham. Both Isaac and Jesus walked up Mount Moriah to be offered as a sacrifice. Both carried the wood that would be used for that sacrifice. Both were bound on that wood that they carried. Both willingly laid their lives down. Isaac was saved by the hidden ram, and Jesus became the perfect lamb. Isaac's life was meant to point you to Jesus. We're talking about God's story. This one was the craziest of all. Both Joseph and Jesus. 
Remember Joseph in his coat of many colors? Both Joseph and Jesus were conceived by miraculous birth. Joseph by the barren Rachel and Jesus by the Virgin Mary. Both Joseph and Jesus were prophesied to become rulers, then became shepherds. Both married a Gentile bride. Both were hated by their brethren, sold for silver at the price of a slave. Joseph was tempted at Potiphar's house. Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Both Joseph and Jesus were falsely accused suffered for another's sins, confined to prison, sentenced with two other criminals. One was saved and the other was lost. Both Joseph and Jesus were exalted after their suffering. Joseph held Pharaoh's seal over seven years of famine, and Jesus breaks the seven seals of famine in Revelation chapter 6. Every knee bowed to Joseph in Egypt, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Joseph held the bread of life, and Jesus was the bread of life. Joseph's life was meant to point you to Jesus. Nearly every hero of the faith in the Bible, their life either directly through prophecy or indirectly through types and shadows points you to Jesus. That's the first story is telling God's story. We've got to talk about it. And the second way is telling your story. My six-year-old Josiah has been on a, a kick lately where we're driving in the car. We've got a 20-minute drive to church, and he'll say, Dad, I want you to tell me a miracle. And he wants to hear personal miracles. He doesn't want to hear miracles from the Bible, although those are great, because, but he reads about those when he's, he said, Dad, I want to hear your miracles. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And, and so here we are. I'm I'm telling him everything I can remember, right? Every time I had a headache and it went away, every time that financial miracles, every person that was healed, I'm telling you, I, everything I could think of, and 10 minutes had passed, and I still had another 10-minute drive, and I'm thinking like, buddy, you realize, like, you only live one life. You only get so many miracles, right? He's like, no, Dad, I want another one. So then I'm thinking of every miracle I've ever heard a preacher say in church service or any. I, the, I told him the time that Lee Stone King was raised from the dead in Australia. I'm telling you, I, every miracle I could think of. And then he started to get a little bit, he started to get a little bit greedy because then he's like, yeah, Dad, I, I appreciate the financial stuff, but I want to hear like the times that you like died and got raised from the dead. And I'm thinking like, buddy, you realize to have that one you got to die, right? You don't want that one like a dozen times or anything, you know? And, but I can, as I look back in that rearview mirror, I could see in his eyes, his faith start to change. Because he said, if, if my dad can have that miracle, then I can too. And it's not just in these pages. It's still happening today. If it's for my dad, then it's for me. I'm talking about telling your story. Parents, your kids really do want to know your story, even if it isn't perfect. Your kids want to know your best memory in third grade. They want to know that time that you fell in love. They want to know the first time you felt God. What was it like? Why do you have a faith now that you won't let go? Your, your family's perspective of their past and compass for their future is determined by your willingness to tell them little stories. And so my question to the church today is, who in your life is speaking beneath the silence? Tell me your story.
telling your story is sharing some of the good things that God has been or done in your life. It's your 10 to 15 second testimony or that time that God healed you or that car accident that was way too close if not for the grace of God or that church service that you felt God for the very first time or that time that you got baptized or when you got the Holy Ghost or your favorite sermon you've ever heard or that time that you prayed for something and it happened. Where is your story if I could only dig it up from the depths of your soul somebody needs to hear it what about the time that you felt nothing but you stayed faithful or the time that you fell and got back up somebody needs to hear it paul had a story he loved to tell acts 22 paul's getting arrested and he looks over the crowd and he realizes hey a captive audience and he says hey everybody i was riding on a road to damascus one day and a bright light shined above the brightness of the sun and knocked me off my horse, and, you know, I've never been the same since. And then four chapters later in Acts chapter 26, he's standing before King Agrippa on trial for his life, and he says, Hey, King, you want to hear a story? I was riding on a road to Damascus one day, and suddenly a great light shined above the brightness of the sun and knocked me off my horse, and I've never been the same since. Church, you have a testimony, and somebody needs to hear it. And it might be deliverance or deterrence, but it's got to be told. And you know, this city of Ironton, has a remarkable story, too. And the more research that I've done as I came down here in the weeks in preparation for this, the more I realized that Ironton has had a profound impact on America, a far greater impact per capita than you would expect to see. From right here on the Ohio River have come visionaries and raw materials that have shaped the last 200 years of our nation. I also learned that Ironton has the longest-running Memorial Day parade of any city in America. Ironton was at the center of the Industrial Revolution, was responsible for the earliest cars and ships and railroads worldwide. Ironton was a key supplier of cannons and armor in every conflict of the 19th century. But it's been the people raised right here in the seat of Lawrence County who have changed the world. There have been pro football and baseball Hall of Famers come from Ironton, Ohio. University presidents, world-renowned musicians and singers have come from Ironton, Ohio. Marion Tinsley, the greatest checkers player of all time, was from Ironton. The winniest high school football coach to ever live is from Ironton, Ohio. Two Medal of Honor recipients and William Lambert, one of the Air Force's greatest flying aces to ever enter the sky, was from right here in Ironton. It was heroes of Ironton like John Campbell who stood up during the Civil War and sheltered slaves on the Underground Railroad. It was Camp Ironton that quartered and trained Union troops who sacrificed their lives for freedom during the Civil War. Ironton has always been a city that sends out to the nations, people, and resources. Ironton has a legacy of sending and I believe in the Holy Ghost that a new age is upon this city where a city known for its strength will send out to the nations again. I believe that leaders in the apostolic movement will come out of these walls and kingdom resources that change the way that we reach souls will come from right here once again. 
Ironton has a story to tell. And this world is going to hear it. Because stories carry with them identity. And if somebody can see you in your story, they might be able to see themselves too. Being a storyteller begins in the home. And I believe that a family is only as strong as its stories. And healthy families make healthy churches. So to be a healthy church, we need storytellers. That's the framework that brings us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 as I close. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules? Verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. You see, Israel's only hope to remain a nation after entering the promised land, the only way that they could stay in the favor of God and walk in his will was to tell their story to their kids. Hey, Israel, when your kids ask why, why do we do that, mom and dad? Why don't we go there? Why do you keep telling me these rules over and over again? And who, who was the Moses guy, by the way? Didn't, didn't he die a long time ago? Israel's job was to tell the story of Egypt. We were slaves. And the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. When plagues fell on Egypt, God protected us. When they had darkness, we had light. When fire and ice fell from heaven, the clouds parted over Goshen's land. And when death passed over, we were covered by the blood. When we got to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was behind us, as our hearts fell inside of us, we saw Moses lift up his rod and a strong wind split that sea. And with a wall of water on one side, and a wall of water on the other side, we walked across on dry ground. And as Miriam's timbrel played, we knew that we weren't slaves anymore. Church, Israel's only chance to survive as a nation hinged on their ability to tell a two-minute story. And you know what? By all accounts we have, they did. In Joshua 24, 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, which had known the works of the Lord. How? How did they know all the things that God did in the past? That Jordan generation became a generation of storytellers. I'm finished. Let's stand. I have a very specific challenge for the church tonight and so I need you to listen closely we're going to pray here in a moment I have a very specific challenge for you tonight I want you to pray that the Lord will show you three stories that you're going to share with your kids your grandkids somebody you mentor whoever it is in your life that's looking to you three stories I want you to tell a story in which you laughed a time you cried and a time God touched you. A time you laughed, a time you cried, and a time God touched you. I mean to mobilize your testimony this evening. And then I want you to share that with them over the next few days.
That's right. Brother Lido is giving you homework. There's an easy out here. You just go up to him and you say, Brother Lido gave us homework and I'm here to turn in the assignment. I'm serious. A time you laughed, a time you cried, and a time God touched you. Thanks for joining with us today. Be sure to check us out online at greaterfaith.church or find us on Facebook by searching My Greater Faith. There you can watch this sermon and others, as well as live stream all available services. If you like what you heard today, be sure to follow our podcast for new sermons and Bible studies as they become available. Greater Faith. Everyone's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything's possible. Anything's possible.